The mother put the porcelain spoon. The mother drew back and poured the little girl back. But the mother did not hear the old voice. The mother. Experience the heartwarming story of a mother's love that knows no bounds, titled The Mother, written by Nobel Prize-winning author Pearl S. Buck. It's a story of love, sacrifice, and the universalism of motherhood that transcends race and borders, told through an account of an unnamed mother living in rural China in the early 20th century. Get the audiobook right now at radio.cgtn.com or any major podcast platform. Simply search for the Books and Beyond podcast and key in the mother. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Roundtable, coming to you live from Beijing. I'm He Yang. Good as always to have you along. The internet has changed many aspects of our lives. This week, we will be highlighting on each show an aspect of which the internet acts as a game changer on how the sector evolves. The pandemic juiced the growth of. Internet-based medical services, and a slew of companies have ramped up their resources in spearheading the telemedicine area. We take a pulse check on the rapidly developing sector of online medical services, and ancient trees, which date back more than a century's time, have stood the lapse of ages. They need protection, though, in order to survive in bustling cities. Beijing has set up parks for old trees. What's it trying to do? For today's program, I'm joined by Ding Hung and Pearl in the studio. First on today's show. China has seen rapid development in online medical services over the past decade. Especially in the wake of COVID-19, the country saw a sweeping surge in the overall user base and engagement with online medical platforms. The public demand for medical services in this country has outpaced supply on multiple fronts. The overarching story, though, is that healthcare tech is a clear market opportunity, and within the narrow space of telemedicine. Medicine, there are a lot of companies trying to satisfy that demand. So, after a COVID-fueled online healthcare boom, what's the lay of the land of internet medical services in China? And this one goes to you, Ding Hong. Well, let's first of all check on the latest data on China's online medical、uh, care market.、Uh, basically, according to a report by the China Internet Network Information Center. The internet-based、uh, medical services have witnessed the fastest growth in terms of user base here in China. Official data shows that as of December of last year, the number of users had reached 363 million, which accounted for some 40, 34 percent, rather. Of the total number of the Chinese citizens, and the number saw a year-on-year increase of more than 20 percent. In the meantime, according to、uh, Huaan Securities,、uh, China's internet medical care market is expected to reach、uh, 87.61 billion yuan. That's equivalent to somewhere around 12 billion U.S. dollars、uh, in the, by the end of this year. So basically, last year was considered to be a milestone for internet-based medical services here in China because the backdrop of the COVID pandemic has really, you know, in a very, very、uh, dramatic manner, 
boosted the, the, this kind of demand for internet-based medical services, therefore uh, leading to a rapid, really substantial development of this particular industry. Yeah. So, what do you see as maybe the thing that stands out to you? And also,、uh, is it different from home, South Africa, or whatnot, Pearl? Yeah. I mean, the rapid pace of integrating、um, the internet into the medical sector—it it seems like it's moving. I guess、uh, at, at a very fast pace. Even in Africa, we saw we see that a lot of people with with the rising.、Um, Internet connectivity, you know, people being able to have smartphones and、uh, have access to the internet in different parts of the continent. What you are seeing is that governments are now starting to lean in a bit more on uh, uh, digital healthcare services or internet healthcare services, as we're calling it. And、uh, so they are now saying because we have this problem of.、Uh, Uh, staff shortages, especially healthcare workers,、uh, doctors, and nurses. We don't have enough on the continent, and those that we have, they are being poached by bigger countries that offer better salaries. And so, because of this challenge,、um, internet、uh, healthcare services they are coming in handy, especially in trying to improve access、um, to. Rural areas that is help it. It's helping、uh, people in rural areas have this valuable service that、um, ensures that their lives are improved, especially when it comes to health.、Mm, yeah, definitely. I think the internet brings a lot of convenience, especially with the、uh, medical care. This is one of the uh, exemplary um, areas, so to speak. But there's one number that you just cited. Ding Hong, which I find to be a little bit baffling, that is, thirty-four、uh, percent、yeah. of our population apparently are engaged in, met well, at least have enjoyed the、uh, so-called medical、uh, internet-based medical services, and it made me sort of dig into the history of actually quite brief history of、yeah. uh, internet medical services in this country, and if you do count in. Um, booking an appointment online as internet-based medical services, then yeah, I would be a little bit less surprised by that huge number.、Um, but maybe that's what it is. Yeah, indeed. I guess、um, yeah, the, because the definition is pretty broad. I think,、um, and I think basically the、uh, the earliest form of internet. Uh, based medical services can really dates back to the early 2000s because some industry experts, in their observation, they have divided、um, China's internet-based、uh, medical care sector into three stages of development. Basically, the stage one, according to these people, to to these people's opinion. Uh, it covers uh, the area between 2000 and 2015. Um, so basically, during that stage, the focus was on exploring the internet medical industry. Was business activity primarily, you know, focusing on some peripheral medical services, just like what you have suggested, offering online medical information, consultation, appointment booking regarding doctors. So at the very stage, it was、um, very limited. But I guess later on. There was a so-called fast or golden period of development, starting from 
or some or somewhere around that. Yes, from 2016 to 2019, which is only a, a few years time, but pretty much before COVID, that was the、uh, the cutoff point. But in the first stage of development, like、uh, Ding Hong, you mentioned, at the time there was very limited involvement in actual medical diagnosis and treatment. So it's very much, you know, booking、uh, appointments, and it doesn't really regard much with your specific ailment.、Um, you don't ask a doctor about. What happened with this particular black spot that I see in my arm? That kind of thing. And、yeah. then in the second stage, which was also a very, even a briefer moment by the look of it,、um, there was a lot of talk and also a lot of investment that went into developing these online medical platforms. And all the big names in tech, you know, here in China, they were all involved and they were all trying to invest and build a big ecosystem that they hoped that. They can lock us in as much as possible, and certainly going to see the doctor for treatment. This is like a huge part of everybody's life. At some point, you will need to go through that, and then comes stage three, which is twenty twenty two to twenty twenty two. Did that make it clear? Twenty twenty to twenty twenty two. So that was the transformation period triggered、yeah. by COVID, and then anything that could be moved online. Has pretty much been moved there, so that's where we're at now. Yeah, yeah, and and Pearl, you seem like you want to share with us something. No, no, I, I'm just、uh, still, you know, looking at how this makes people's lives easier. I mean, coming from a third world country in a way, <laughs> um, a continent that's full of、uh, countries that are still、uh, very much far behind in terms of、uh, technology, even with resources that.、Uh, Are related to the healthcare、um, sector, and uh, so what uh, this uh, development is is ensuring, as I said earlier, is that it's ensuring that people do get the services that they need, especially people in deep rural areas or poorly developed regions of Africa. I mean, when you look at the what the WHO or the World Health Organization says,、um, it says that Africa averages about three doctors to ten thousand、uh, patients. And you compare that to countries like, say, Germany, where it's 84 patients to about 10, 84 doctors rather, to about 10,000 patients. So that 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 just paints a picture of how far behind we we are as、uh, Africans, as well as you know the challenge of、uh, not having enough、uh, healthcare workers. So now, if people have access to the internet through their smartphones or even at Home, they have laptops or、uh, PCs. Then they are able to reach out to doctors in different parts of the country, even or even in the world, to get the services that they need. And、uh, we also have this challenge of doctors preferring to remain in cities rather than go out and work in rural areas. I mean, a lot of、uh, incentives. I know in South Africa, the health. Uh, department does give incentives to doctors who just graduated、um, to actually go out and do some work in rural areas, but、uh, after they finish that period. They come back to cities and and work there, or city hospitals and work there. So what、um, 
digital healthcare services do, they allow these doctors to remain in the cities, but also still provide services to rural communities. So we are seeing a huge, huge gain that is um, being acquired by people in rural areas due to this. And also, when you look at uh, insufficient uh, resources, um, health, digital healthcare services or internet medical services, they allow um, regions to pool resources. So you can have um, patients all over the country, but they, they'll be able to access maybe uh, a neighboring um, regions, um, mm-hmm. a neighboring regions um, resor- resources, whether it's like uh, for x-rays or other, other, other services that the hospital provides. And so this is a very, very important development, I think. Yes. And some of the issues that you just brought up, Pearl, I think they're shared around the world, like a shortage of doctors, nurses, and healthcare workers. And we've seen that in China for years, and the pandemic most possibly has exacerbated that shortage. And also, um, during the third stage, which was during uh, the pandemic when um, these online medical services went through a rapid uh, development phase, a lot of the public insti- public medical institutions had these online sessions as well for patients. But ever since business is more or less back to normal, I just can't really wrap my head around that these public hospital doctors are already swamped with work. Do they still even have time for these online sessions? There's a huge question mark there. So I suppose that leads to my next question, which is um, something that is more relevant of a discussion point at this particular point in time, that is telemedicine, which is 线上问诊, has become prevalent by allowing medical personnel registered in these uh, public or, or private medical institutions to conduct long-distance consultation and diagnosis via the internet while it offers obvious benefits, and Pearl has gone through some of them, but there are some obvious problems and uh, concerns that yeah. after the last few years, I think now you've got sort of like the patient-slash-customer review. What are they? Mm, so my general, you know, before... Digging into details, my general impression or skepticism about this, if the medical resources, the total uh, volume or quantity or amount of medical resources is fixed, or if there is a general lack of medical personnel, then uh, they are not going to provide um, quality service on online anyway. That's my general impression. But... Uh, you know, sorry, maybe there could be <laughs> the other side of the argument that is, mm-hmm. well, within maybe their quote unquote free time. <laughs> so like if they want to, if yeah. these doctors want to do something extra in their leisure time or whatnot, or maybe mm. some hospitals might have these work assignments or something along those yeah. lines to, let's say, really help out in like remote areas where, you know, there are some of these cooperation programs of mm. big hospitals in the biggest Chinese uh, cities to help out uh, the remote villages or, you know, places that are significantly short of medical resources. Um, yeah, I know it 
might sound a little bit far-fetched, but with a lot of these online uh, mm. platforms who claim to have registered doctors to um, to mm. to also uh, provide their service on their private platforms, then mm. then how do you explain that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, the, the point I was trying to make mm -hmm. is that we need to supply, increase, continuously increase the supply of uh, medical talents. That's mm -hmm. really the key direction. But, you know, going back to the question about some of the um, problems or shortcomings in this particular area, I think uh, number one is really this lack of, uh, you know, physical or face-to-face -face based examination because really without a physical examination, those doctors or healthcare providers in general may really, you know, end up missing some really important uh, diagnosis guidelines mm. because so thereby that will potentially lead to misdiagnosis or or incomplete assessment of the medical condition to say the least mm -hmm. that can lead to some really um, bad consequences if not handled well because um, so here is one particular case I have a uh, uh, collected from a relevant news story. Uh, basically, we are talking about a man surnamed Ling who have some dark spots on his skin. He made an online appointment with an expert and purchased a telecom, a, 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 a telephone con consultation service, and he hope, basically hoped to receive more medical diagnosis and treatment in a more professional manner. And guess what? After a merely a three minutes or less than three minutes phone call, he was advised by this online doctor to visit a, a real hospital, mm -hmm. a brick and mortar hospital instead. So he paid money for this uh, so-called uh, consultation or services, but which, you know, in retrospect, feel like a waste of money. So he, he could have just went to the brick and mortar hospital in the first place yeah. and saved that 140 yuan in time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 140 yuan is not a big deal for average Chinese households, but for people with less decent income, that's a burden. That's still yeah, a still certain a amount burden. of money. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. What are some of the other concerns that you have, Pearl, in light of... Um, the popularity of telemedicine. Well, one of the concerns is that uh, people don't trust, still don't trust Why should technology, they? especially oh, oh, sorry. technology, yeah. especially that as well. in Africa. Yeah. Even though people, younger people, maybe they are more welcoming to it. Yeah. But when you look at older people, I mean, one example in Africa, voting, a lot of people are against voting online. They want to vote on paper, the traditional way during elections when we, in countries that host elections because they fear being cheated, all of those things. So when it comes to medicine also, that is a concern that some people may have. They don't trust talking to someone who is not really a person. They want to talk to a real doctor and have a comprehensive um, checkup, you know, and that will make them feel like they're being well taken care of and they will just calm their nerves if they are suffering from something that is really shaking them up. And uh, we saw this in Rwanda, uh, which is an East African country, where um, the 
government teamed up with a company called, well, I don't even mention the name, but with a private company where they introduced the, the continent's first digital universal primary care service to make healthcare more accessible in, in this small country. And uh, some of the people, some of the patients, this is what they were saying, that, you know, they, they, they don't trust, they don't fully trust the online uh, uh, checkup system, right. but also we have the issue of uh, dangers that doctors face. So, do- especially in Liability? conflict in conflict areas, um, in conflict areas, we know there are c- many countries in Africa that are sp- experiencing fighting and so on. Sudan, etc., and uh, people need attention there. So, telemedicine comes in handy there because it does not put doctors in harm's way they're able oh. to be consulted they get consulted um off-site and um or remotely and they're able to give um their prescriptions and so on wherever they are and not close to the conflict zone right that's a Thanks for bringing that up. Um, I, that was really beyond what I thought mm, would very eye opening. Yes, would be involved here. And when we talk about doctors, apparently some of them are scared of liability because if you misdiagnose something, and uh, let's say if the patient comes back at you maybe with litigation, then what do you do? So therefore, they usually come up with very conservative. Diagnosis, or they would just send you back to the brick and mortar hospital, and therefore that has uh, generated some some bad reviews, and yeah. and also sometimes the doctor you you might not be seeing a doctor online in real time, so you'd be leaving a series of photos of your ailment and also um, description typed in by you um, and then you you wait for the doctor to read all of this information and give you a f- uh, give you feedback and sometimes it takes a long time and people are simply just not satisfied with this kind of consumer experience this is also an interesting thing that with online um, s- uh, medical sessions as such and well so far there isn't really a standard of, of how exactly should that be conducted mm-hmm. and then people when, when they're engaged in this kind of so-called business practice they kind of treat this as I am the consumer. I am supposed to be God. And therefore, I am anticipating a certain level and quality of service. And a lot of these online platforms simply are not adequate to deliver. And therefore, you get a bad review. And it's really interesting how this whole sort of uh, medical diagnosis experience kind of varies a little bit from the experience in the public hospital when you kind of you have a lot more respect it feels for Mm. the doctor and it's not so much of a consumer experience if you see what i mean Mm. also how safe is your data oh that's (laughs) another yeah that's the thing i mean you're dealing online activity sensitive um you know medical issues that people want to 
kept secret or private you know and nowadays we have lots of hackers that are doing uh, nefarious yeah. things so yeah that's also another concern that people might might have, have. Mm. yeah with this at least you're not entering your id number you don't necessarily need to show all that but but i i think it's a valid valid concern for sure that yeah, you know, this information and, breach thing yeah in the meantime other problems could exist as well judging from some of the relevant Uh, media reports we see here in China, these problems could include, say, some of these platforms actually use an uh, use AI technology to oh. do the prescription. Is it any which, good? Which might raise some concern regarding, <laughs> you know, uh, trustworthiness. I would prefer prefer a real doctor, a real expert, to prescribe drugs for me rather than an AI, a robot. You know, you, that's a really good point. Do you think that? Folks are actually um, placing a lot of faith in these online um, sessions, or maybe you're kind of just looking for a second opinion. And th- and here is also a problem that apparently, according to the regulations, these online medical platforms are not allowed, not permitted to give the first diagnosis. They shouldn't be doing that. But in reality, sometimes that happens. So, in theory, they should be offering a second opinion. But in reality, when sometimes you know you're you're you really want to know what's wrong with this thing, and then you go online, and you're not really happy with it. Yeah. So I guess that's that's the reason why in most of recent years we see. Government authorities, for example, the National Health Commission, releasing many, many, you know, several relevant documents trying to strengthen regulation, supervision, or even to, you know, to enhance the self-inspection on the part of these platforms. So, yeah, hopefully. There can be some improvement. Yeah, self-inspection. <laughs> Anybody、um, with the ability of the critical、least. thinking would have some second thoughts about that. I, th- I think some independent inspection. I can use a thermometer. Yeah, <laughs> thermometer. <laughs> okay. To, to inspect myself, not the the companies. No. Oh, I see. <laughs>、oh. So this is definitely one of those fast developing areas that needs more guidance and possibly regulation and inspection in the near future. We'll be back after this break. In a world shaped by ancient civilizations and remarkable trade networks, a wondrous journey awaits. Footprints presents Connected, a gripping ten-episode series that takes you into the lives of ordinary people whose destinies intertwine with the ancient Silk Road and the Belt and Road Initiative. Following the modern initiative that connects several continents via land and maritime networks. We uncover captivating stories along the way and witness how it bridges different cultures and peoples throughout time. Brace yourself for an enthralling experience with Connected, arriving on all major podcast platforms. Subscribe today and join us on this extraordinary journey through time and space. Discussion keeps the world turning. This is Roundtable. You're listening to Roundtable with myself, He Young. I'm joined by Ding Hong and Pearl in the studio, and 
when you're not around table ding heng, you sometimes host, but are always involved with another show. And tell our listeners where to find you when you're not around table. Thank you so much for the opportunity to always, you know, being able to promote my own radio show. It's a show and a podcast as well called、uh, World Today. It、uh, on goes on live、uh, on air from Monday to Friday、uh, and Sunday as well, actually, from seven to eight p.m.、Uh, every evening, Beijing time. And on this、uh, upcoming Friday, I will be hosting the show. Thank you very much. Lovely. And now we know where to find you, Ding Hong. And、uh, we do have comments saying that、um, they just can't have enough of you. Simple as that, Ding Hong. Thank you. I'm really, <laughs> really flattered. And it was really great to have you guys on the show, sharing your unique perspective and、uh, fun insights as well. Coming up, some of our country's oldest trees survive and thrive in the most densely populated cities. Today, we discuss the significance of ancient tree conservation and the positive impact of creating designated. Dedicated spaces such as an ancient tree garden to safeguard these living monuments. Follow our lead in listening to the lives of ancient trees and breathe in their wisdom. And some youth hostels have rejected customers older than 35, and we need to find out why. <laughs> and and I think some of these hostels have already apologized, but. It's a bit strange. Is it Asianism? What's going on? Our podcast listeners can find us at Roundtable China on Apple Podcast. When you're there and you're so inclined, please give us a five-star review. It will help other folks find the show. And there's got to be questions you want to raise and hear us discuss. So share it with us, would you? There's a place to do it. EZFMRoundtableFoxmail.com. Emails are fine, but voice memos are always better. Your voice could be featured in our heart-to-heart segment. And now on Roundtable, as we continue today's discussion, ancient trees maintain a remarkable presence, standing tall and stretching centuries of time. They are not only Vital for ecological balance, but also are an integral part of our natural heritage and bear cultural significance too. In China, ancient trees are defined as those aged over a hundred years old, and the Beijing municipality has set up parks for ancient trees in an effort to conserve these trees and their surrounding ecosystem. So, tell us. How these ancient tree parks have been built in Beijing, and cite some examples too, Ding Hong. Yeah, so basically, the、uh, the municipal government of the Beijing city has been building some ancient tree parks across the city to conserve these trees and also to really enhance or improve their surrounding natural environment. That's a very key element as well.、Uh, we are talking about a project involving twenty. Ancient tree parks, including ancient tree theme parks, ancient tree protection communities, as well as ancient tree alleys, and this project was first proposed back in 2020. So basically, I guess the the purpose is to improve the growth of ancient trees and raised. 
the Beijing residents' awareness about the importance of protecting these um, um, natural heritage. Let's say, let's put it in this way. So, one example is that earlier this month. The ancient tree garden in Bai Wan Shan Forest Park was repaired and and open to visitors. There were ancient there were seven ancient trees in that particular garden, and the ancient tree and their habitats have been protected as has has been protected as a whole. And another example is in the central part of a village called. Kangling,、uh, in Changping District,、mm. there stands a really magnificent ancient ginkgo tree, which, according to local village officials, is really believed to be nearly a thousand years old. And it seems so far this particular protection project has been successful and smooth as well. Yeah. Well. Um, Pearl, you're from a country rich with natural resources and natural reserves, and my gut feeling tells me that, huh? Protecting ancient trees—we have plenty <laughs> of them at home. Is that your gut feeling? <laughs> Which is perfectly fine, you know. No, I mean I think this is a natural cause of action for us humans living on this earth to protect and conserve. Everything that is here that has been made available、mm. for us to enjoy, and so it's not really,、uh, it's it's bigger than just protecting the trees. It's about conserving nature, and、uh, that includes the protection of these valuable trees. We do have in South Africa what is called the baobab tree, or the great tree. It's a huge、uh, tree which is found in the province called Limpopo,、uh, in in the northern parts of South Africa, and it's about it's more than. One thousand eight hundred years old, and it's it's regarded as the oldest baobab tree in the world, and so that it it does fall under、uh, the trees that are protected,、uh, the national list of protected、uh, trees, and you're not allowed to cut it, you're not allowed to use part of it for、uh, I guess for any gains or damage the tree, or else you'll face some penalties. So the We do have a list of、uh, trees that we do protect and we believe are part of our culture as South Africans, and、um, you know it's very important to protect、uh, such、uh, trees because we just saw a very sad uh, uh, incident uh, in.、Um, In、uh, Sierra Sierra Leone,、mm. uh, in the capital, which is called、uh, Freetown, where their cotton tree, which is、uh, which was also、uh, like more than a thousand years old, it fell during a huge、uh, storm、uh, in that country just recently. I think、um, it the incident happened in May. Yes, and.、Uh, The tree was、uh, very important to the culture of the country uh, because uh, it, it, product, it was something that was linked to、uh, the slaves that escaped from the U.S. and came back to resettle in Africa. And the first thing that they did was settle under this tree. So that was more than like 400 years ago, and、uh, so it, that's why it was part of the protected trees、uh, back.、Uh, in, In that country, and so for the tree to fall apart during、uh, the torrential rains, it was very sad to see. Something that was very sad to see. It was covered by many publications around the world, 
and and you know because it symbolized this uh, freedom this returning of the slaves black uh, freed slaves that were resting or used this tree to rest and pray you know they used the ground around the tree to pray and you know rejoice in their newly found freedom after years of uh, being subject subjudicated is that the word yeah i think it is yes <laughs> if it's not sorry um yeah so now it's just a sad a yeah. sad story so it also emphasizes or highlights the need for us to do more to protect um, ancient trees and ensure that they do survive uh, all these um, i guess these terrible weather patterns mm. that we're experiencing right now um due to climate change and and so it also reminds us to do more to fight climate change because this is a destruction that it is doing to our uh, valued uh, natural resources yeah oh again uh, pearl this is exactly why we need you on the show it really broadens our vision in looking at the world with a lot of the points you share with us and the examples that you give to us and here in beijing when i'm looking at ancient tree protection actually this has been ongoing but in the past few decades what we've might what we've might seen would be there has been this awareness and that's a really good thing but also during the rapid urbanization process um often you're looking at a huge residential building or a complex is being erected and there are a couple of ancient trees here are they kind of in the way of development or sometimes in the last few years i remember reading all these news reports of you know um well, celebrities? Well, these are um, mm-hmm. uh, well-known people okay. with a long history or contributing to our culture and their old residents. Um, should they be bulldozed or should they be kept? But again, they kind of stand in the way of development. And how do you deal with these things or relics or living monuments that might be very useful or very good for the environment, but Mm -hmm. you have all these big plans of developing the city. And that was a bit of a headache that many cities experienced. But in Beijing, we saw these little patches of land um, with this sometimes it's like out of nowhere like in the middle of a highway and then there's this ginormous hole that gives room to an ancient tree to stay there yeah um that's good yeah and and and, uh, also i've actually seen this uh firsthand over the weekend this is only like less than 10 uh, sorry a thousand meters uh that would be north of the uh, Chang'an Avenue and mm-hmm. that station should be Dongdan I believe and um, there is a cluster of ancient trees admittedly only three but they occupy this special land and it's in the middle of a residential building uh, sorry complex and you can see that special conservation attention has been given to these three trees because they're ancient and because they're supposed to be good for us and good for the development of our city. And could you explain to us why? What is all this, you know, 
a serious consideration that goes into protecting ancient trees. Yeah, in my understanding, this the in all the efforts and endeavor invested into this field is really not only it's not only about you know protecting the 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 the, the natural environments that we city residents are are yearning for, but also about really about preserving or, or protecting the the identity of the city, the cultural identity of the city. You know. Because think about, say, here in the context of Beijing,、uh, it、um, it has served as the capital city for so many historical dynasties, you know,、uh, lasting more at least more than a thousand years, right? So many dynasties, and basically, those historical rulers of China, they came and left,、um, but all these trees existed. They were not cut because of a change of dynasty or change of、uh, ruler or leadership, right? So,、mm-hmm. in the case of here, I because according to the data I can collect is Beijing is home to more than forty thousand ancient trees, which make the city with the highest number of ancient trees in the world. Whoa, that's amazing! And there are a total of seventy-four species of ancient trees in Beijing. So it's really about preserving the historical and cultural identity of the city, and it's not only here in Beijing. Similar efforts and endeavors have made in some other historical Chinese cities as well, like Hangzhou, right, which is pretty close to my hometown, actually. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah.、Um- I think people just need to get more involved with these initiatives and not to leave it to the the local councils or government authorities.、Uh, they need to ensure that the 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 trees, the ancient trees in their communities, are well, are well protected. I just saw I was reading about、uh, this initiative in the UK where. About I think it was、um, the yew trees. About 157 of them were facing、uh, threats of being destructed, and there was a petition that was started. That was in back in 2019. There was a petition that was started to protect these、uh, trees from be- from destruction, and so such initiatives. I think they raise awareness. They will help to raise awareness among communities, and to also let them know how important these trees are. I mean the These yew trees that I'm talking about in the UK, they are about two thousand years old, and、uh, all the environmentalists that are concerned about their, I guess their well-being, they are trying to ensure that they remain for another century to come. And、uh, all we can do as,、uh, I guess,、uh, citizens or residents in those particular areas where we do have these trees, we just play our little role, and then together we can all make a difference. Yeah, well, here in Beijing now, the discussion has expanded from, let's save this small handful of number of trees to we also need to save the area and environment, preserve them around the tree, and I think、mm. that's really a leap in development and how people think or approach this conservation、um, issue. So. That is the part why、um, having these gardens or parks for ancient trees come in handy. And across China, 
um, we've seen many provinces and cities or um, townships included have made an effort in protecting Asian trees. And Ding Hong, could you give us a few more examples before we wrap up and go to the next topic? Yeah, so uh, Hangzhou is one example I talked about earlier. And apart from Hangzhou, I can also find another example regarding Tianshui, which is a city in northwestern Chinese province of Gansu. Basically, that city is home to more than 2,900 ancient and precious trees, and more than 100 of these trees are over 1,000 years old, according to statistics released by the local government back in 2019. So, however, due to a lack of, you know, effective protection measures, many of those trees suffered from uh, issues like uh, pests, uh, mm -hmm. plant diseases, natural disasters, uh, pollution, and human behavior, including, you know, graffiti. That's very a tragic situation, but um, under... Under this kind of awareness raising on the part of the local government, I think there has been some improvement. So, yeah, so basically, I think those um, historical and cultural protection center in the city have invited those um, plant experts to come up with some specific uh, protection measures for the trees. Um, based on their specific problems, including treating, you know, tree holes as well as installing fences and trunk supporting structure to improve their living environment. This is very important because really, you know, when you think about it, uh, ancient trees can also increase biodiversity, right? So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um uh, for example, um, owing to their sprawling roots and luxuriant uh, foliage, ancient trees form a small biosystem by themselves, and they serve to regulate the climate and provide habitat for animals. For instance, an ancient banyan tree in Tianma Village, Jiangmen, Guangdong Province, forms a forest by itself. Its wow. offshoots <laughs> cover more than 1.3 hectares providing shelter for 105 bird species, more than 300 plants, and over 200 wild verb... Okay, can't... This is the, like, snail kind of um, mm, animals that I'm yeah. trying to get to here, and they've been found around the trees. So these are... Well, that's uh, a mini ecosystem just like that. And mm. also, ancient trees bear testament money to our history and both of you mentioned you know the symbolism that these trees can can embody and uh sometimes i just think of that term mm. um if trees could talk you know all yeah. the things that it's witnessed and when you think about it maybe they would be able to survive humanity because yeah. there's only so many years we mm. can be you know, for each person to yeah. live on on in this world, even with as much advanced high tech or healthcare tech, one can enjoy maybe a hundred years in, in in the future if you're lucky enough. Yeah. But these trees, we're talking about hundreds, if not thousands, of years. So this is an important piece of the puzzle of our ecosystem, and we need to be aware. We need to be careful. We also need to make the effort to 
to preserve a lot of what nature and Mother Earth has to offer, because we have the future generation to think about as yeah. well, right? You know, somehow one issue, very briefly, is that I can think about is that the current laws regarding ancient tree protection should be improved because. Almost every province or city or region have their own regulations in this regard. However, in order to really further enhance ancient tree protection and really deter those illegal activities,、oh, I guess、uh, there、true. needs to be national level legislation and laws. I yeah, guess. and. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of nerd nerding out here, but there's one more point I would like to add, just to reiterate how and why it is so important to keep these ancient trees alive and well. That is, also these old trees may have scientific value as well. They they offer like a living、uh, reservoir of. Ancient tree genes, and if you lose one, you lose it forever. So、um, it will. So so it's it's again. It goes back to the biodiversity issue that we all need to. We can take part in in preservation and conservation. And you're listening to Roundtable. Coming up next, some hostels rejected co- customers above the age of 35. What is going on? Stay tuned. Looking for passion? How about fiery debate? Want to hear about current events in China from different perspectives? Then tune in to Roundtable, where East meets West, and understanding is the goal. It's the hour of Roundtable with myself, Hui Young. We're bringing you a live show. I happily am joined by Ding Hong and Pearl in the studio. Youth hostels around the world have long been popular among budget-conscious travelers for their affordability and the opportunity to connect with like-minded individuals while sharing accommodation. Now, age restrictions imposed by some hostels have provoked. The ire of customers. Recently, the、uh, topic of several youth hostels in Beijing refusing to accommodate individuals over the age of 35 has sparked discussion on social media. So, while this raises questions of the legitimacy of age restrictions, consumer rights, and whether businesses have the power to impose such limitations,、um, so what do you think about this? Uh, speechless. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> how could this have happened? Yeah, how? Well, okay.、Um, so, so the hostels might say we are a youth hostel, and in the English lexicon, there is this term "youth hospital." Uh, sorry, youth uh, uh hostel.、Um, don't need to go to the hospital until maybe much later. Fingers crossed. Um, so therefore, in Our Chinese culture: If you pass the age of thirty-five, then maybe, maybe you don't qualify to be called youth anymore. You're a bit too、mm. old. So, yeah. So, so Pearl, what do you think about this?、Um, does this argument stand? I mean, I understand it a little. <laughs> you do. You <laughs> do. Because if they only or mainly cater to younger people. Meaning, maybe people in their thirties or early—I mean, in their twenties or early thirties—then if you have somebody older, 
uh, or in the like say in the upper part of uh, the 30s then it might create a challenge i mean i do belong <laughs> in that bracket so i i mean i guess my habits might be a little different from someone who is way younger who's in their 20s so maybe i i understand if they are looking at that and saying uh well if you have different needs than our like the other majority of our customers then it's a challenge for us to adjust to just you know serve you as an older person <laughs> but yeah it is a it, it is discriminate i do feel discriminated against <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it is ageism i think yes yeah somehow i feel like the reason why this topic has drawn so such a wide scale discussion on the internet uh, is because of this particular terminology or phenomenon called a 35 year old crisis in china because mm -hmm. you know as a sort of um hidden uh or self official or semi semi official guideline on the part of many employers once a job seeker is above the age of 35 they wouldn't admit to it though yeah it's just you it's a but it happens open sometimes it's yeah it's an open secret but because uh let's take a look at the data based on a 2022 survey conducted by the all china federation federation of trade unions more than 50% of of people aged between 35 and 39 said they were worried about losing their job the highest across all age cohorts while 71% were concerned about outdated job skills so that's another issue but going back to this uh, hostel reception issue yeah discrimination that's blatant discrimination and um with all this wave of criticism and complaint online and coming from multiple fronts as well um these youth hostels they how are they reacting to it i mean they better do something without upsetting so many people now they're infamous so mm. to speak Yeah, uh you know the way somehow the way they have responded to this criticism wave of criticism is that they find explanation for example they claim the rule was implemented as a safety measure for the elderly some say for, for what 35 and you need extra measures to protect your safety yeah well you made a <laughs> or you may need a a more comfortable Bad. a wheelchair maybe <laughs> yeah because uh, most of <laughs> them have ridiculous. double like double decker cots or double what you call them those um two uh, beds bunk beds, bunk beds. Bunk yeah bed. so yeah, most yeah, of them yeah. have bunk beds and so for older people people <laughs> <laughs> people uh, above 35 maybe they won't be able to use bed the upper part of the of the bed set people are only 35 i know i mean i can climb up there um and i'm like So yeah. yeah, this is definitely <laughs> it's it's just impossible to But um, this discussion is not new. It way back in the early 2000s, that's where we also saw the call to remove the youth out of because they used to be called youth car, uh youth hostels. Yeah, and just don't get tripped upon the word youth basically now in around the world. A hostel is a hostel with or without the youth attached in front of it. You're listening to Roundtable. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.